Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Corey Haley. Now, today we're speaking with Raylene Finlayson. Ray has worked in education for over 20 years, from being an EA to teacher, administrator, principal, supervisor, senior manager at Alberta Education, and now a consultant. Along the way, she completed a master's in early learning. And she has a passion for learning and for working with young children. She's provided support in a variety of areas across the early childhood spectrum. Some of her favorite topics include inclusion, play, Reggio-inspired programming, and nature-based play. Now, in our conversation, we get into many of these topics, and I think you're going to hear Ray's passion for early learning come through. Now, if you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed, and we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes, leave us a review, or even better, tell your friends about us. Here's my conversation with Raylene Finlayson. The Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Raylene Finlayson, how are you today? I am pretty good, I have to say. That's good. Um, I want to thank you so much for taking a bit of time and joining us today. I'm looking forward to talking to you about all things early education and beyond. We better have days. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have days, so let's okay. uh, let's all dive right. Uh, right into it. And, and when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about, um, the biggest thing that came to my mind was when I started my career. So I started in the high school world. We were looking at students who were fairly far removed from early education, but we would hear about the importance of investing in early education programs. And as a high school teacher, and even as a staff, we would kind of wonder what the effect of this was, because we couldn't really figure it out. We couldn't really suss it out. And there were even times when, although we understood, we were a little bit hostile, I would say, towards investments that were being made to kids who weren't even in school yet, right? Like right, these are yeah. pre-kindergarten kids. And, yeah. and, and because we were staring down the barrel of higher class sizes and things like that. But I, I guess what I wanted to ask you is, what would you say to the, you know, a couple decades ago me, high school teacher who wondered about what is the value? of investing in early education. What do you see as the end result gains for not just students in high school, but after high school as well? I think um, life starts with um, 
good, strong um, pregnancy, good, strong outcomes in health when babies are born, then those first five years are extremely important because that's when our brain does most of its um, connecting, most building most of the the connections, the neural transmitters to actually build the skills necessary to be a learner later on. We understand now more than ever because of all the research and the technological advances we've made so we can actually study brain patterns and we can actually see what's happening pretty much um, in our brains, which I find fascinating. Um, but it's that argument which I heard more at the beginning of my career than I do now because we understand that that the early years, for every dollar that's spent in the early years, we can save up to, studies have shown up to $17 per dollar. So when you think of our high school students, for example, if they leave the high school program and they actually have a di- diploma, they're more likely to, by the age of 50, have had a job and and buy a house and, and be a, a tax-paying citizen. So the same thing works if our kids start school at more of an even playing field, not a diploma, but <laughs> but sort of that they're developmentally on track, that if there's delays and um, uh, disorders even that need support, we're best to do it when the brain is really malleable and we can build the better connections. We know now that the brain is more malleable throughout your entire lifetime, but certainly um, it's easier to train the brain than untrain the brain. So as an example, if you're consistently um, saying a word wrong or a sound wrong and you practice that that d and t are the same sound, so your brain is only getting to hear the same message over and over again, and now we've got to untrain and separate that out, it becomes a lot more difficult as a 7-year-old than it does as a 4-year-old. So um, there's just lots of research now around lifelong effects. So health outcomes, um, the kids that experience trauma in the first five years, we know that they're way more likely to have cancer, heart problems, obesity, um, have more addiction issues than kids that don't. So uh, it's becoming more and more evident that those early years are more important. And as an educator... Spending money up front is always better than trying to do remedial work um, later on. I would totally agree with with everything you're saying. And I've come to understand that. I I know that early education programs look a little bit different around the country in Canada, where we are, but also around the world. Maybe just for a little bit of a point of reference, what what... Does it look like here in the province of Alberta, when you say early ed, what ages of kids are we talking about? And what are the main services or interventions that are provided to kids? Um, we have for, for healthcare within Alberta, um, we have early intervention, which is generally from birth to three. So kids that are born already, we know there's something, um, either a birthing complication or a health complication that is, is pretty evident right away. 
and they get early intervention. Now, those those services used to be as kids required, they would receive what they needed. Um, and that would mean like a home visitor, someone to support the parents, possibly an, a nurse coming in and supporting depending um, on the needs of the child. Now, those have been cut by our, our government. So now they get one six-week chunk of time. And if they require more, then they can have a second six-week chunk of time in that birth to three. So within those th- first three years, a parent who has a child with severe um, complexities like uh, vision problems, autism, um, cerebral palsy, they get a whole six weeks, or if they're lucky, 12 now with some support. So that's that's unfortunate. And then our system at two years, eight months, um, it used to be a three-year program, but now the government has cut it to two. So kids can have two years, somewhere between two years, eight months, and uh, four years, eight months to get early intervention our early education, as we call it. And the name only comes because it's funded through education. Back in the 70s, when we decided that early intervention was needed, we had health and education both playing a part. And at that time, they came together and decided that the funding source should actually come through education. So that's where program unit funding um, began. And it used to be program unit grants. And I guess people didn't want to be referred to as pugs, so (laughs) a puff is better, I guess. Um, So early intervention typically looks like small class sizes, uh, 8 to 10, maybe 13 kids, all with severe delays. Um, There was a real move in our province towards inclusion where we could have play partners or community kids, whatever the title was. So we'd have typically developing kids or kids that have most kids have an area of great strength and an area where they've got to stretch a little bit, need, needs some needs areas. But a good quality program offers the supports that they require. And by a good quality program, I mean a teacher that has some training in early childhood, um, some special ed kind of background, knows how to break tasks down to the very, very minimalist, and then supported by a multidisciplinary team, speech-language pathologists whose, communi- whose expertise on communication is phenomenal. And they can tie that into a very play-based program. Occupational therapists, and we often hear from parents, why would my kid need an occupational therapist? They're not going to have a job for a long time. (laughs) Um, But the the, the occupational therapist or an OT really works at functional day-to-day skills. So when you're a kid, that means being able to pick up crayons and use it some way um, without eating it, uh, possibly helping with eating, swallowing, um, understanding that the mouth is a huge sensory organ and, and for a lot of kids, really difficult um, to, to adjust to different textures in their mouth or different tastes. So occupational therapists really help with the whole function of the child and regulating their emotions and, and uh, are like needed for most of us because our kids don't come with instruction books with um, areas of of need. I always think it would be great if we could plug in our kids like we do our car and it kind of brings you back a report that says where the areas are that require more support. Um, So, And then there's other members of the team that have always been very uh, useful and um, a real positive aspect. Physical therapists, for example, working on the gross motor aspects. We have a lot of kids that are very stationary or sedentary, so we need to get them up and moving. And it actually requires a lot of um, whole body uh, awareness in order to break down other tasks later on. Um, even sitting in desks, we see more and more kids are falling out of their desks now. They're laying all over the place, and they just don't have core strength. We're, our, 
they're not doing a lot of things that build up their core. So sitting in one place, they get slow chi easier. We have lots of lots more health issues than we used to have. Yeah, Corey, as Corey sits up straighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about my posture. Yeah, exactly. Talking. Me yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so just the the whole team approach in Alberta was. Um, probably the best. Like it, parents came from other parts of the country to come to have early intervention services here because it was typically from age three to six, they could have a pretty high level of support, which also meant that usually monthly they'd also have family support. So whatever the parents needed support with, whether it was bedtime routines, going grocery shopping, getting a haircut, anything that was really getting in the way of their success as a family, um, the early intervention programs would then support the family to support their own child because parents are the first teacher and the best teacher and they know their kids the best. So um, that was ideal. However, with our cuts, there are no more family programs unless, unless um, I mean, you always want to support families. Don't get me wrong. Every teacher out there does that. Um, but it's not it's not an intended outcome every month to kind of check in with parents. It's sort of as needed. And um, there isn't enough funding now to have that whole multidisciplinary team working with the child um, on a regular basis. And the only way we can afford to run any kind of programming is by clustering all the kids with disability in one group. So inclusion is out the window. And the best teacher for kids is their peers. If you say, can you please line up at the door? We're going to gym. And none of your kids can understand those that direction, it's nice to have a couple kids in the class or some of the kids in the class that are going to go line up at the door because then the other kids are actually seeing real models constantly. And um, with adult support, kids kids don't mind getting all the help. If they see that other kids are doing it independently, as we know, most little kids want to do it themselves. They want to be independent. That is a driven goal. So we need other kids they're modeling constantly if we can. And right now we cannot afford that um, because our class sizes are so big with kids with severe disability that adding the other kids, they're still kids, they still require care, learning, materials, like you name it. They still require all that, which we just don't, we just can't do anymore, yeah. which is unfortunate. Well, I want, and I want to talk about that elephant in the room because I feel like in any economic downturn, all of the long-term investments, whether it be in health or education, are often the first to suffer. And when you look at the, the cuts that were recently made to early education programming, and you were to gaze into your crystal ball and say, I, ha- I fear that these are going to be the consequences, what would come to the top of your mind? What do you think the biggest consequences of reducing that funding structure for early education will be, let's say, a decade down the road, because that's probably when we'll see it play out, maybe even two decades down the road. Um, I think there's no coincidence that um, when we did the early developmental index, so we did research on every kindergarten student in Alberta between 2014 and 2016, um, kind of to get a good baseline of what, how are our kids doing, um, we found that approximately 30% of our kids were not ready in kindergarten. They're, they're developing at least one area of development that was, ex- um, they were having extreme difficulty. When we flip and we look at the other end of the spectrum on that, approximately 30% of our kids are not finishing high school. 
So within the three years, some some take four, some take five, some right. come back and and stuff. I don't think it's any. When we look at the long term effects now, for kids, if you're if you're constantly having to catch up or not be able to get supports, and it's not like once they come into elementary school, the supports are there waiting for them. It gets less in in elementary school just by sheer numbers of kids and the sheer range of abilities within all our kids in classrooms right now without the appropriate supports. So that means kids are going to get further and further behind. Um, if you went to your job every day and it was difficult and you've left every day thinking, I'm not good enough, I, why can't I do this? Um, you're not going to want to come to work anymore. And so we can see for kids that struggle in school, their attendance is poor until um, they just don't come anymore. And depending on the family background and how the family stressors are doing, that can be a huge um, problem. We know that our kids living in poverty are more likely to struggle and less likely to graduate and go into secondary school. We have a lot of data around that, those pieces. Um, so the fact that we're cutting it now, I think in 10 years, we're going to have kids struggling in school in junior high then. And junior high is hard enough. Nonetheless, um, challenged by motor processes or um, learning difficulties. And then if it's difficult, then good luck graduating and then good luck being um, a tax-paying person. And we know that their health outcomes are going to be worse, so they're going to be more likely to be on AISH or other um, uh, community-supported programs, which would in the end cost us more money. When we look at the cost of a child, let's say, experiencing um, difficulties with a, a regulation as a small child, so they have a lot of behavioral difficulties. If we don't get a handle on what the regulation needs to look like and feel like for that child and support them in their language development, then by the time they are in junior high, they're often involved in the law and, and um, the wrong side of the law. One day of court for a young offender is approximately $50,000. Now, if we could take that $50,000 and invest it in the early years, that would be amazing. So when we look at where we're spending the money on the judi judiciary system, supports once they get to junior high or before, um, on our mental health supports that often come in, come along with uh, failing over and over and over again, um, the, the costs later are going to be much more. And, and it's going to be life, our kids', our kids lives. I, I often struggle with that. And what I mean by that is how do we understand or how do we get people to understand that investment in early education and early intervention in health and in public health gives results? It actually saves money long term. And I've seen some statistics that would support exactly what you're saying, but it seems like that is misunderstood or not well understood. Do you have any tips for trying to get people to see that this is an actual investment that saves us money long term? Do you have any, do you have any advice for, for us who are out there speaking with people either in our professional lives or in our personal lives to say, no, this, this, this is an investment. This will actually lead to better results in our society and actually less cost. I think we need to do a better job telling the story. 
Um, because we so often think of um, those young kids or teenage kids, or we, we group kids in these kind of false cohorts because our kids are constantly changing, mm-hmm. um, constantly getting older and wider, wiser. Um, and we need to start thinking of our kids as citizens as soon as they're born. They, they have a voice and a choice. And, and how do we support our assets for later who I always say, I want kids who are going to take care of me when I'm old. Um, I want kids who will go into healthcare and want to help me, but have the problem solving skills to know if my medication gets changed in the wrong way or, um, doesn't put me in a too hot of a bathtub because, you know, they couldn't read the thermometer properly. I, I want to be taken care of. I want my parents to be taken care of. How do we change the narrative? We need to start educating our kids from the moment they come. If we start showing our kids how important they are to us, and I think teachers do it a lot. Um, absolutely. Parents do it with their own children. But how do we, how do we not roll our eyes at the kid having a meltdown in Walmart, but offer to help? How do we, um, support each other's children like they were our own? That is a, a big changer in our society is, is seeing kids as belonging to all of us in order to make a difference. How we get there, I know it sounds kind of socialist, but I also, I just think we need to, um, be more aware of the fact that these kids are not kids for long. Um, it's a very short time. But I think in our own school system, we can start educating our children about the importance of uh, early child development. Uh, if our high school students all knew the importance of the brain development and the share and return, if that was part of their course that they have to take in high school, I mean, those are the kids who within five years are going to be parents possibly longer, but those are the ones that we most need to connect with. They need to remember some of those courses. Did you know the kids' brains are 700 neural connections a second when they're, when they're two years old, like, or under two? Like, that's amazing. Like, just think of that. And our kids need to see the amazingness of that human connection and understand because if we have kids who soon become parents, then we can start changing the dialogue. So in three generations, our kids are the most important. And I see this in New Zealand. I had an opportunity to go to New Zealand and um, they have had a very different focus as far as kids and uh, childcare and every child has a right to quality care. So they've enhanced their care system Um so that kids go and it's seen as a social sort of, they can come three times a week. Uh, it's free. And just for that social aspect to play with other kids, to have stories shared, to learn uh, the Maori language, which is their indigenous language. Um, but know that 30 years ago, they were in the same kind of the indigenous population was overrepresented in jails, were overrepresented in their poverty, were, um, treated poorly by law enforcement. Um, there seemed to be a double, a double standard. So what New Zealand did is they changed the early childhood approach as a starter. So bringing in the culture, you had to bring in the Maori culture. You had to use Maori, some of the Maori language and the understanding. And the Maori culture is that children should be seen and heard at all times and that children are why we're here. And in the Maori culture, for example, um, your oldest child goes to live with your parents um, because then they'll hear the stories of, of history. They'll hear what their ancestors believed. They'll get the stories passed to, to them. So if you can imagine, and when I heard this, I thought, oh my goodness, 
but their their oldest child is actually given to their parents as a gift, hmm. and that's okay. And um, they still visit their family, and but I can't imagine giving away my child to anybody, even even my parents. But um, but it's a different culture. They've culturally shifted so that children are as important as we all say they are. But you can walk into, I was in a, a meeting with the education department in uh, New Zealand. They invited us in for a luncheon. There were kids running around because staff didn't have childcare that day or whatever. They had to come in and because we were, the Canadians were, were coming to visit. And so there was kids and that was okay. No one shushed them. No one, they, they were the important, they're the reason we're there. So we should treat them, um, like the gifts they truly are. So that's how we have to shift, I think. Um, but I think it would start in high school if we could do, I would love to do the brain training and uh, some of the good research kind of activities that we do with community with our high school students. I also think about the initiative that we had where we had early education programs inside of high schools for a while It was there. fantastic. Wasn't that? I just thought that was so powerful as you can learn about all of these things about the brain in early education, but to see little, little kids, two yeah. and a half or two years, eight months to four yeah, years, yeah, you know, yeah. three and four year olds r- yeah. running around, it, it made it real. It, it did. And it made it, um, for a couple students that we know that were able to get their early childhood level one through a uh, course there, um, felt that they had somewhere to work. They felt like they contributed. They, they are working in the community today. That is, that is fantastic because we, we don't have good outcomes. We seem to have a lot of courses for, um, more hands on working with materials. We've got computer stuff. We've got all kinds of, um, woodworking mechanics and, and those are girls and boys. Awesome. But it's that heart. What do we have to, to support those kids that are really about feeling and socially support and supporting, um, others? And we don't have a lot of that. So that early childhood was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and at least one in eight of our future parents are going to have a child with a disability. Now that can be pretty scary if you've never interacted with a child with a disability. If you went to high school and you saw kids that clearly had some delays and disabilities and how joyful they were and how they're still just kids, um, you just have to interact with them a little bit differently, that's going to make you feel a lot better as you have this young person in, in your own heart and life to support. And it's going to be less scary. And we owe that to our kids to see that it's less scary. Kids are kids. And there's a ton of support out there in our community. Speaking of shifting narratives... I want to ask you if there's anything that when you speak about and and maybe we'll move off the early education, but maybe not. When you're talking about education generally and you're espousing your beliefs about education and what could or should happen, is there anything that you consistently get pushback on? Is there any of your beliefs that you realize there's either a large or a significant population that doesn't agree with you? Um... No. Well, I don't, I don't know because part of me is I know what I, I believe in and I, I have to be true to that. So I think one of the big, um, beliefs I have and because I've managed to see it so often in amazing work is inclusion. And when we talk about, uh, the inclusion of, of 
diverse kids as we have in every school and every classroom and, and probably have for a long time. But now we're including kids whose diversity really stretches us, really makes us think, okay, so how, how can, how can we help learn and continue the learning of a child who maybe doesn't speak or doesn't use their body in the same way that we use our bodies. And so how can we do that? And how could it possibly be a benefit for them to be in an inclusive classroom? And um, so that's a pushback. Uh, I have witnessed, and I guess until you witness it, and I would say of teachers who, who I've worked with who are at first very hesitant because they don't think they have the skills to meet the needs of complex kids. Um, once they realize that they, A, have the skills and that the skill really is about following your heart and moving children along the continuum. You don't have to make everybody learn the same thing at the same rate. Um, once, once teachers see the gift that the child brings into the classroom, it's, uh, it's an, it's, it's easier the next time you have a child with diverse needs and, and so on. I think the other children all learn about community and connection with kids with um, special needs. And so I think the inclusion thing, saying that they're taking away from other kids, is one I hear a lot of, and there's no taking away. I don't think having any child in a classroom is a taking away except that they're watching us model behaviors. So when I think of kids that really struggle, some of our kids that have some severe behavior, and we're not giving them the right resources to put them in the program to begin with. So you can't have a child who's putting other kids at risk without some individualized training prior to, like what's it going to feel like to go into a gym and it's going to be chaotic. And maybe it's okay that we watch a video about what the gym looks like before you ever come in. Because if you're on fight flight, all it takes is a small bump, a little twist of the ankle, something that now you're, now you're mad and you can't control it the way other people can control it. So we've got to give kids strategies. We've got to universally kind of be able to offer kids what they require and still offer an inclusive setting, which would require a lot more resources and a reorganization of how we set up schools so that there's a flexible in and out of classrooms and spaces and places for kids. So um, I think it's possible everywhere. Um, and in most of our rural centers, there's no other option. Sometimes in our um, urban settings, we always think someone else can do a better job. Like, I don't, I have no idea. Um, for example, I've worked with a million, well, maybe not a million, I'm not that old. I've worked with a lot of kids that are on the autism spectrum. I'm very comfortable with kids with autism. I would be fine in a classroom, um, and, it, and, and I have been with many kids with autism, but give me a child that is visually impaired. I've never actually worked with a child that was visually impaired. I've had friends who have been visually impaired. I've taught horseback riding to kids that are visually impaired. But as far as what does that look like in my classroom, I would need a fair, a fairly high level of support to support me to support them. So I think we have our teachers need to feel that the support is there when they need it. And it's not a judgment because we don't all have, we all come with different experiences. And um, so I think inclusion is the big one that people um, push back on. But there are a lot of a lot of good supports out there if we could reach out and, and be really flexible. I know that when it works, it's because the school staff as a whole, the admin, everybody's flexible. They're, they're thinking about, okay, this isn't working or what can we change or in a perfect world. And then they, they kind of get there. And a lot of our kids have answers that we don't ask them. So. Mm -hmm. 
The next question that I have relates to what you were just talking about, and it is the learning environments part. I am interested because you have such a, a perspective on inclusion and early education about what you think the best learning environments look like. What is it about a great learning environment where everyone has the ability and the capacity to learn and that learning environment supports that ability? What are some of the characteristics of that? What are some of the nuts and bolts of what that looks like practically? Um, hard right now in COVID, but let's, let's leave the pandemic aside. Um, because actually a, a lot of what the perfect environment is, is a community of learners of a family. So, um, and you can feel it as soon as you walk into a school. So is there some things that help alternative seating? Kids can stand, they can sit, they can uh, move around the room as, as they need. Um, that's important. But I think relationship between children and their teacher and between the children themselves is the most important piece. Because as a group, once there's a trusting relationship, it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to do things differently. If I think I'm going to be judged by the kid next to me or by the teacher, I'm not going to ask for help and I'm going to sit silently and or explode and leave because that's another great option. Um, so I think when I go into environments and I've had the pleasure of being in different countries and um, it's really about that sense of coming together in the community that uh, makes for a good environment. If you can have natural objects in it, absolutely. Um, there's something about having having living plants and living beings in our environment that actually helps kids. Uh, if we can get outside more often, that would be amazing. Um, I'm a huge proponent of outdoor programming uh, because it helps our kids balance and and be regulated uh, without as much effort as it takes inside a, a classroom. Um, yeah, I think just that sense that you all belong here, no matter who you are, including the teacher, and what in the room says we are unique and that we're represented by the, the people in our school and, and in our class. Are there pictures of our families? Are there pictures of our dogs? On I've, I've noticed that in all our Zoom meetings with kids and stuff, as we constantly have dogs, uh, even with um, in constant Zoom meetings, it feels like with uh, consultants and teachers and other um, adult learners, and they've often got a dog or a cat uh, in their office with them or in their home, <laughs> and they're calmer when their dog comes and sits on there. Like you can see they relax in them. So I think there's something to having more animals, um, definitely more plants in the classroom and outdoors. Uh, in some, some countries that's common for dogs, classroom dogs as kind of therapy type dogs. Um, yeah. So mostly it's relationship yeah. and you can feel it when you walk into a school, a place that, um, is calm and, and people are relaxed. You can feel tension. And tension comes from not feeling like you belong. So, um, yeah. Is there something in your background and experience that you had that can be either positive or negative? We're, we're open to either. That you reflect on and think back to often because it helped you to learn an important lesson or it helped you to understand something that continues to happen today. Um, yeah. So the first time I decided I thought maybe I wanted to be a teacher, um, I, 
I thought I'd go volunteer. And there was a school in Edmonton at the time um, that was specifically set up for kids with learning disabilities. And so I went in there and I'm going to volunteer. And they put me into, I think it was a kindergarten class, kindergarten grade one. Must have been kindergarten. Um, but there were some early learning kids in there. And, and they introduced me to a little girl, big brown eyes. She's adorable. And she came with all kinds of acronyms they, they gave me. And I, at the time, didn't know what any of those meant. And uh, one of the acronyms was ODD, which I thought was pretty rude that you'd call us as child odd. And it, um, I learned later that it was oppositional defiant disorder. Um, but I learned very quickly that if you have someone who's oppositional, then you should not say no. Because if you say no to them, you'll get smacked in the head hard enough to give yourself a black to get a black eye. So a three-and-a-half-year-old gave me a black eye the first day of volunteering. And I think that was like a huge um, learning for me is find out more about the people you're working with before going in. Um, always give kids choices. And uh, never just say no outright, whether it's kids, teachers, uh, no matter what it is. Uh, I think I've learned that if you listen long enough and you get to the why of the why of the why, um, things start to make sense and you can better understand. So uh, that was a big one. Um, another big learning for me is I have a husband with a physical disability, and uh, so his arms are whacked from thalidomide. His mom was given a drug when she was pregnant. And the, the way people treat him differently than I am treated to this day is shocking for me. So I want to live in a world where we don't even have to talk about inclusion because it's just the way of being and that people are seen for what they can offer and who they are as a person versus how they look or their disability or their acronyms. Um, so I think that's ongoing for me. I'm constantly learning. Um, I, I currently work with kids and families that have autism and the way those kids make me think about what I wonder what they're thinking about. They make me think about thinking um, constantly is, is every day is amazing. And I would have never thought of it that way. Or um, so I think that's just learning never stops. So. Yeah. This next question is pretty poignant because I feel like everyone during COVID has got their new tech tool or anything like that. Um, any favorite app or website or media that you've been that you like either before or after COVID? Uh, something that you think is powerful for learning or even just your personal life? Um, that's a hard one. Um, I love the idea that we can go and connect um, far away, like it's just next door, and that has been huge. Zoom has been as much as it's annoying in many ways. Um, it has allowed me to continue to consult to Africa, for example. I, I zoom into their classroom in Africa, in Abidjan, and it's warm there all the time. Um, but it just warms my heart to see the kids and actually connect with kids that I saw in person last year and see what they're learning and, and get the joy of their learning, even though we're a long ways away. So Zoom is great. Um, I try to uh, use new apps as a engagement way. So one of my favorite ones is my talking pet. And, <laughs> and so, um, my cat did a lot of, uh, teaching of kindergarten curriculum last, uh, in the spring. 
um, and had a, a weekly, and then in the month of June, a daily um, lesson for kindergarten kids that I had a few friends whose kids had Nugget News, and uh, Nugget is very, very intelligent, and um, she did a lot of rhyming activities and a lot of outdoor activities and, and stuff with the kids um, by giving them lessons and wonders. And so that that's fun. And other kinds of just fun things that even young kids can use the apps with, um, like as a chatterbox or like just a, a variety of things that actually are using your tablet to figure out problem solving and processes to link creativity. So those are big ones for me, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's something that's fun. I like playing with photo apps to see what we can do. Um, yeah. Do you have a favorite book? Uh, one that you quote or you refer to or even maybe yeah. give to people? I do. I have a couple. Um, if you're a teacher um, with little kids, From Teaching to Thinking, from Anne Palo and, and Margie Carter. And it's really about early childhood and... Um, how how we set up the environment and provocations, how we lead to kids having the opportunity to think on their own, um, just better ways to do that. So it's very good. Um, and then a book that was gifted to me by um, the coordinator of First 2000 Days and uh, one of the reading projects from Calgary um, is called The Enchanted Hour, and I usually give them away, and Corey, I was going to bring you a copy, but I've given away my last ones, but I'm going to order you one. So The Enchanted Hour is about the importance of read aloud with kids, whether your kid is 2 or 22, um, just the power of reading together as a connector for families or um, teachers, and it's full of pretty up-to-date research and um, lots of research from MIT and neuro neuro um, kind of research to see how the brain interprets different things and how reading with your kids for that hour before they go to bed or half an hour or another book or in continuing this idea that we read aloud as a, as a gathering, as a connection, um, how much that improves their ability, their cognitive ability in other areas of their life. So it's a big one and um, I think every parent should read it. I would, or every, even every teenager, so that when they have their kids, um, are there pieces of this kind of research that we can be shared? What's something that you do every day or most days that helps to keep you well and healthy? Um, probably spend time outside. And I think that's why I'm a pusher of getting kids outside because I feel my best when I'm outside. Um, best thinking comes from going for a dog walk. Um, I'm not a big exerciser so much. Um, I'd like to be, but I'm pretty clumsy. So even when I walk, I have to watch that I don't trip on a root. But um, yeah, I love being outdoors. I love hearing the birds. And any place I travel in the world, I notice the birds is the first thing I notice when I walk out of an airport is what are the sounds of the, of the place I'm in. Um, so I think that's been huge for me when I look back in my life and I grew up in the country and spent a lot of time outdoors. So being outdoors is a balancer for me. And uh, I think that's that's what works for me. And I also do a lot of art. So I try and do my creativity. I need to have a creative outlet or else um, people around me end up having to work a lot harder because uh, Ray's creative outlet becomes work. And, uh, and I'm constantly wanting to create new and different things, which puts everybody else having to work harder. So if I can do the creativity at home, then work is a little bit um, better for everyone else around me. I still 
like change. I like to go in and do things better and question why we're doing things we've always done. What's an organization or a person that really inspires you or you look too often? Mm. I know I answered that before, but I don't remember what I said. <laughs> um, I think uh, kids inspire me. Uh, organization, I think... Um, um, there's a, a group of early childhood people um, that do fairy dust teaching, and they offer a lot of professional learning and a lot of um, good examples of learning, whether it's early childhood or just even elementary up into high school, I think. Anyway, they're, they're amazing because they bring in a variety of other people and other speakers. Um, Ken Robinson was one of my... Um, fascinations and he's just he was amazing and I did get to meet him once um, um, I think anyone doing good work and collective work I think um, there's good people everywhere so I've had the pleasure of working with amazing people that inspire me every day um, yeah and organization like United Way does amazing work in our community um, currently, the, I work for Children's Autism Services. The person that started that, she inspires me because she had an idea that she wanted things better, and she's just kept plugging ahead and plugging away. And, and um, now it's a huge organization with 250 people and, and different problems that come from that. But uh, she still wants what's best for kids with autism and is very focused. And so it's people who sometimes it's people who really find that singular focus and follow it. And they, I'm, I think because of my ADHD, I think that's amazing that someone can stick to one thing like that. So, so I want to know what's next for you. Um, one of the reasons I love catching up with with you and and, and speaking with you is uh, is you're always up to something new <laughs> and interesting. And as you said, questioning and 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 looking to to make things better. What are some of the things that you're looking at to make better or diverting your attention to in the coming either weeks or months or years? Um, I'm doing some work with um, uh, First Nations in southern Alberta. So that's fascinating um, because I want to learn from them. And I'm always uh, fascinated with teaching kids to read and what do we know best about reading and literacy. So uh, last year I did a lot of work with... Um, uh, the learning bar and working with literacy um, programming and all across Canada spoke with many, many leaders in that area. Um, I, I have a dream where I would really like to work with um, young kids and animals. So how can we get some of our kids that are on the edge um, more connected to something they do have an affinity for so working with some of our foster dogs and training them and not to turn them into like specialized dogs but just sit stay like that and dogs animals in general have that unconditional love that I think some of our kids need to experience to understand it and maybe they haven't had that opportunity um, to experience that in their upbringing so that I'm always interested in the mental health of kids moving forward so between making sure all kids can read making sure teachers feel like they have the, the supports in place um, or know where to get supports 
and then um, ways to work with our mental health and community and animals and kids. That's something I want to do at some point. That sounds awesome, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with that. Because, <laughs> yeah. like I said, I, I, I always am inspired, and I'm, uh, uh, I'm always interested in hearing what you're doing, because it's always something a little bit different, and, yeah, it makes me think. It, it's, it's amazing how opportunities show themselves um, when you put it out there in the universe. So I've learned, yeah, I've learned that be careful what you ask for. <laughs> Now, let's say people do want to follow along and, and don't have perhaps as uh, close of an access as perhaps I do. Uh, how can people contact you? How, how do people reach out and say, hey, I really like what you said there, Ray. Um, you want to come work with us or you want to come talk to us? Um, I uh, can be reached by email, probably is the best bet. Um, and it's rfinlison.learns at gmail.com. Um, I do a lot of speaking and training. It's weird with Zoom now, so I'm, I prefer to do it in person, but depending on the audience and if I already have a relationship, like I'm doing some work with a First Nations group, I already have a relationship with the staff there from doing a review last year. So I feel like Zooming will be, will feel a little better because I know who the people are on the other side. Um, and again, same within Africa and I do some Zoom work, um, consulting in Bermuda. Um, I, I'm just a little worried because they usually fly me out there a few times a year and I'm a little worried that uh, the Zoom will work too good and I'm going to miss sitting on the beach in between. <laughs> so I'll have to be careful. Yeah. But, don't, um, don't do too good of a job. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So technology is pretty uh, friendly that way. But yeah, I don't know. But people can connect with me. Um, I'm also on Facebook, and but just as Ray Danes, actually, so. I want to thank you so much for taking a bit of time. Um, I'm inspired by the work you do, and I'm just so happy to have a conversation with you and share a little bit of your insight, because every time we talk, I learn a little bit more, and, and I am curious to, to delve more into what you have to say. So thank you so much. Thank you, Corey, and it's always good to talk to you as well.